We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 345. Okay, our guest began riding as a kid and took a short break after she lost her childhood pony, and she came back to riding as an adult, and her addiction was stronger than ever, and still is. She now competes in the Adult Amateur Hunters, the Equitation, and some derbies with her horse, Ocelot. She recently also purchased her young horse, Enzo, and the chronicles of her adventures of her adult amateur life are on her blog and Instagram, Oxers to Oncology. So without further ado, please welcome our guest today, Sarah Caswell. Hey, Sarah. Hello. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you so much for taking the time. No problem. I am really excited to hear a little bit about your story, but first tell me how you initially got into the horse world. Was it from the start as a little kid? What did that look like? So I started getting into horses through my mom. Um, So my mom rode when she was in her late teens, early 20s. She was kind of crazy. She trained steeplechase horses, got on racehorses. I mean, like fearless. Um, And then I first started riding when I was probably like four or five. Um, Fun fact, I was the first one to sit on her now 29-year-old Arabian when she got her as a yearling. So. That's not, so cool. I love not it. Not the most traditional, but here we are. So, <laughs> yeah, that's how it all started. So it's okay, mom. amazing. And then, how did it kind of grow from there? Um, were you like, at, was there like a certain turning point where you're like, I want this to be a big part of my life for the rest of my life? How did that kind of unfold? Um, so I grew up with a single mom, so that becomes kind of important. Um, a little bit in a little bit. Um, so I rode casually as a kid, um, did local shows, more flat stuff. So like English pleasure, Western pleasure, whatever the horses that I had access to would do. Um, and then I got my quote childhood pony, probably when I was nine or 10, she was great. Um, would do pretty much anything you asked her to. I would do Western trail classes and English pleasure classes and would jump little cross rails and do fitting and showmanship and all that kind of stuff at the local shows. And then I actually grew up in Kingston, New York, which is about 15, 20 minutes from Hit Socrates. So right around when Hit Socrates was in the kind of development stage, um, my pony was diagnosed with Cushing's um, and we had to retire her and that kind of nixed any aspirations of showing at Hits because it just wasn't in the budget for my mom to afford something like that. Um, even if Diamond hadn't gotten diagnosed with Cushing, she was not the type of pony, unfortunately, that you would bring to a venue like Hits. Um, mm-hmm. She didn't have a lead chain. She kind of cat jumped over stuff. But I mean, 12, 13 year old me did not care at all. Um, and then I had to put her down when I was 16 because the Cushing just became too advanced. She medications weren't what they were back then, like early 2000s. And she just was not comfortable. And we made the decision to um, 
her asleep. Mm-hmm. So after that point, I took probably a three or four year break from horses. Um, I didn't ride. I took a break. Um, my mom tried. She's like, are you sure you don't want to ride this one? Are you sure you don't want to ride that one? I'm like, no, I'm good. Like, I just don't. It's not there. Like the spark kind of fizzled out. And then I moved across the country for undergrad. So from New York, but went to Florida for undergrad. I went to UCF. And then I was there for about a year and then heard that they had a riding team. Um, So that kind of got me interested in maybe seeing if I wanted to ride again. So that the summer before my sophomore year, I went back home to New York. I rode with my old trainer, got back in the saddle. It was a little, little rough to start. Um, (laughs) By a little rough, I mean a lot of rough. Um, And then I tried out for the riding team. And because I didn't have a A show record, because all I did growing up was local shows, um, I was able to make the team because they could put me in that beginner walk track canter division. And I did the IHSA team at UCF for a year. Um, and it was fun. It was a great experience. Got to ride a lot of different horses. But growing up with horses in your backyard, I kind of started to feel like I needed that one-on-one, like that was my horse kind of set up, not in the lesson horse thing. And IHSA is for everybody, but I just wanted more of a relationship. Right. And it just felt like that was missing for me. And then it's been, I mean, uphill or downhill, however you want to look at it from there. (laughs) So um, then I ended up meeting a friend when I was waitressing that had horses and we did the whole, oh, you have horses. Oh, you ride horses. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. You ride horses, you know, Mm -hmm. because when you meet somebody the first time, they always say they ride horses and you never, it's almost never that it's at the degree of which that you ride horses. Sure. So went over to her house and lo and behold, she actually rode horses the way that all most of us ride horses. Um, And then that's when I found my first adult horse named Bella. And in full honesty, um, Katie tried to talk me out of Bella because she was she was a very, very opinionated mare Hmm. um, that needed a very strong and confident rider that's had a lot of experience in this, that, and the other thing. And I was pretty stubborn and I'm like, no, 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 no. I want to ride that one. And retrospectively, I don't regret it, but maybe I should have listened. Um, because I unfortunately just through the five or six years that I showed Bella, I just wasn't the rider that Bella needed. She needed somebody that wasn't nervous, wasn't timid, was super confident, was going to be there and support her even when she didn't really have the confidence to go to that far end of the ring or jump that jump. Um, And 10-ish years ago, I 100% was not that rider, but in my head, I thought I was. Um, And that just unfortunately painted the picture that didn't work out for her being my long-term show horse. And I actually retired her in 2017 from horse showing um and no yeah 2017 from horse showing um and then I leased a slew of horses after that because I had a really deep look on the inside and realized that I needed to get a better foundation if I wanted to be successful how I envisioned as a hunter equitation rider um growing up with more flat riding, local shows, I just didn't have um, the foundational training for counting strides, position Mm -hmm. over fences, all that kind of stuff. I, again, thought I had it, but I really didn't. 
Um, so it was pretty humbling for somebody who's ridden most of their life to be like, no, I don't have those skills and I need to go back to the basics and I need to build from the ground up to mm-hmm. get to where I envision myself being. Um, so there were lots of panicked lessons on lesson ponies that have jumped the same jumps a million times, but I thought they couldn't. And they hmm. had those same jumps with like five-year-olds um, and it was like 25. <laughs> so um, lots of rebuilding, couple of lease horses, uh, spent probably a solid two and a half years in the long stirrup, frustrated that I wasn't getting ribbons because I was double adding on horses, uh, getting beaten by bows, but that's what happened. <laughs> now I know that's what happens when you double add, no matter how pretty it right, is. Right, right. Um, so lots of growth has happened since moving to Tennessee in 2016 in Retiring Bella and getting lease horses. And then in 2018 is when I bought Ocelot, who is like my once in a lifetime horse. The amount of things that I have gotten to do because of this animal is just unreal. And I probably would have never told you we would have been here Hmm. um, if I hadn't like five years ago, I would have never told you I would have done the things that I did with him. But I actually kind of cyber stalked him before I purchased him a lot. (laughs) Like looked at his record, found every picture I could. And from the moment I sat on him, I like instantly knew that that was the horse that I was going to get. So I got him in 2018, did one horse show and then went to Southeast Metal Finals down in Tampa because that was a bucket list that I had since pre-2016 with Bella. I just Hmm. really wanted to go. It was something that I had aspired to, never thought I would get to go. And then it was my second horse show with Ocelot. So I did wow. the low adult with him, our second show. And then that next season in 2019, did my first hits Ocala and moved up to the adults. Wow. So, That's so, so special. I love yeah. that. Yeah. So I've what did been- you, what did you see in him that you just kind of like knew he was the horse for you? I don't think I can really. So he's adorable for one. Um, he's adorable. I have a thing for bays. Um, yeah. I love a plain bay. He's just, he's kind of quirky. Um, he's great in the show ring. This horse loves to horse show more than being at home. It was just a feel thing. I was obsessed with him on paper and like his record and I stopped him and he did like the jumpers at one point. I can't imagine him doing the meter 15, but apparently he did it as a <laughs> young horse. Can't, can't picture that, but he did. Um, but the second I sat on him, it was just something clicked instantly. And I've had trust in this horse from the first moment I've sat on him that I've never had with any other horse. Um, it's just a feel thing. It's just one of those kind of weird horse girl feel things. Mm-hmm. And it's just Definitely. gotten even more of an obsession since. So, yeah. And you also recently purchased a young horse, Enzo. What what have you learned working with him? Obviously, that must be quite a different shift from Ocelot. So that is definitely a slice of humble pie. <laughs> um, so I've gotten the question a lot, like, why a young horse? Um, so the most obvious is you know, budget. I wanted right. a three, six AO hunter. Um, and for me to get that was getting a young horse. And I have learned that 
While I have gotten better, Ocelot lets me get away with quite a few things <laughs> um, that Enzo, not that he holds it against me, but he just doesn't know, right? So if I get too lean to the right lead, he's just going to get a little less rocked back and more flat. Like, so all these little nuances that I've gotten away with with Ocelot, Enzo's like, wait, what? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing up there? Now, he... And the other thing is just learning that they're different horses, right? So I've had Ocelot for almost five years now. I know I'm like the back of my hand. I know what he's going to do. I know like the worst thing he's going to do, the best thing he's going to do. Um, I know all of his quirks. I can tell the second I pull him out of a stall what kind of day it's going to be. And Enzo, I don't know that much yet. I'm getting there because I've had him for like a year and a half. But just understanding that they're different horses. Like at home, for example, Oz will prick his ears, almost like kind of looking for something to spook at. Where Enzo's like, oh, I'm just looking because I'm goofy and I'm four. Or no, mm-hmm. he's not now. But I'm just like looking at stuff to look at stuff because I'm a horse. So just learning like Enzo's spook is nothing like Ocelot's spook. Like Enzo's much bigger than I really intended. Um but like his spook is like two steps and he's done. Whereas Ocelot's like a little firecracker for like 10 steps and then he's done. So just in treating them like different horses has been the biggest thing to realize. And just right. something on my seasoned horse doesn't mean I need to do that on the green horse and vice versa. I think totally. that's been the biggest thing for me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, at this point, you've been able to be competitive with both of your horses. But what I love is like, especially on your Instagram, you're, you know, not shy about talking about your confidence and nerves in the show ring. So how do you handle being nervous in the ring and also being like going from one horse to the other, um, especially because they are two very different rides? So probably still figuring out the nerves confidence thing. Yeah. Um, the hardest pill to swallow was I'm a coffee holic and I've had to learn the very hard way. One big thing that helps my nerves is not guzzling like tons of coffee, oh. like rationing my coffee a little yeah. bit. Cause I'm definitely more amped at a horse show than I am in clinic or teaching or anything like that. So Limiting my coffee has really helped a lot with the nerves. Um, And then just going out and doing it, even when I'm nervous. So for example, last winter, um, we brought, it was winter spring or very early spring. It was like in the 30s still that morning. Um, We brought both horses to try on. And it was the end of March, early April. And it was still freezing, like still real cold, like had sweaters on underneath my show coats. And I had told myself, I'm only bringing Enzo for like just to hack mm-hmm. and walk around and maybe ticket, like maybe bop over some little cross rails. And he did great. My trainer's like, you should go bring him in the foothills. Like go bring him in a little two foot class. It's like speed bumps for him. Like you should go do it. And of course, instantly I was nervous because he's, you know, a young horse he's coming for. Like I've never shown him before. Um, and probably pre 2020 Sarah would have been like nope not doing it not considering it no but I've learned through Ocelot being so good at holding my hand when I'm nervous and still like trying and he's very good at gauging like what's safe and what's not safe is that the only way your nerves get better is to kind of force yourself to go through them and it's kind of like a deconditioning thing like the more you go to those 
horse shows and do the classes that make you nervous or ride the horse that makes you maybe a little bit nervous within a safe degree, the nerves start becoming less and less. So by the end of the weekend, I was less nervous showing Enzo. And then we took him back in May. I was less nervous ticketing. Um, So just going out and doing it, even when you are a little bit nervous and not throwing in the towel, I think is really the best way to kind of get better at dealing with your nerves. Totally. And then just also being honest, like not trying to be like, oh no, I'm not nervous. Like that, that tactic doesn't work either. Like you can't just negate the fact that you're nervous. Um, And you have to find that like middle ground too, because I've swung to both ends of the yo-yo. Like I've gotten myself so nervous. I'm like, oh, there's only like six in this class. And this is my chance to get this ribbon because there's only six. Mm. And then you like way spin yourself out, right? Totally. But then I've done the other way where I'm like, you're not in this for the ribbons at all. Like ribbons are not important and you don't need a ribbon. And then I get myself almost too relaxed because then you're like, oh, there's no, like, so you've got to find that middle ground and everybody's middle ground is different. Definitely. In the summer months, I feel like a lot of places that we horse show also tend to have lots and lots of rain. And it's always the worst when you have, you know, a hot summer day with a bunch of rain and you also have a bunch of rain gear. And it's just like the worst feeling in the world, being hot and raining and disgusting and gross. But I want to talk about whether or not equestrian, because if you have not tried their breeches, oh my gosh, I am putting you on to a life-changing material that is absolutely so revolutionary. And I feel like everyone needs a pair, if not several, whether or not equestrian breeches. First of all, they are waterproof. And I know when I say waterproof, you say, okay, Bethany, like maybe like a little sprinkle or like get some water on them and it's fine. No, they actually, their fabric passed rain test AATCC 35,000. I don't know what that means, but after looking it up, it tests, it really like measures the resistance to the penetration of water by impact. I, again, read this, read this on their website, looked it up to actually see what the heck it was. Still didn't believe it. So I have a couple pairs and I put them on, went right to the barn, into the wash rack, and I ran the hose over my leg. And I was absolutely shocked how the water literally ran off my leg. Normal, you know, like riding breeches, not to mention they fit so well. They're so stretchy. They're so flattering. There's a zipper in the back, um, you know, right below your waist um, band that literally holds your phone so you don't have to like wear anything or have worry about your phone slipping out of your pocket. It's just like so well made. And to top it off, the fabric is not only comfortable, stretchy, incredible, it's literally rain resistant, which is just, I think, so revolutionary for our sport. So you've heard enough from me blabbering on. You need to go try them for yourself because I didn't believe it until I tried them for myself. So go visit their website. It's wonequestrian.com. So whether or not equestrian.com. Again, that's wonequestrian.com. Get yourself a pair of these breeches and tell me I'm wrong. I dare you. They changed my life and I cannot wait to ride in them in Florida and in Kentucky all summer. 
I mean, truly, thanks to whether or not Equestrian, rain does not have to freak you out anymore. So go check them out. You will not be sorry. Switching gears a little bit, tell me about your job. Obviously, your Instagram is Oxers to Oncology. Tell me a little bit about like your job and how you balance it all. How does that how does that look like for you on like a a daily weekly basis and how you also still juggle going to horse shows and and spending time with your horses on a daily basis? So um, I'm a PA, which is a physician assistant. Um, My handle came because my first job out of PA school, I was a surgical oncology PA. Um, So the oxers, the oncology came from that. And I also had cancer. I had thyroid cancer when I was 12. Mm. So it was kind of like a twofold um, came from the handle. But I did surgical oncology for about three-ish years right out of PA school. Um, I started working what's called PRN, so as needed at an urgent care, um, because I wanted to maintain more of like my generalist skills, like looking in ears and listening to lungs and doing all that kind of stuff. Because when you're in the OR, you're pretty much just dealing with surgery and post-op complications and that kind of stuff. Um, what I will say is I personally had a very hard time working in a surgical subspecialty, balancing horses. Um, I loved my surgery job. I really did. I loved that patient population, but it was difficult for me to balance enough time for horses and enough time for my career. And both are really important to me as a human and part of my identity too. Like I identify as my career and the horses. Mm -hmm. Um, so it just, I came to a, a crossroads where I kind of had to pick, are you going to be pretty much all career or are you going to try to find something that balances? So I always knew from the time of which I went to PA school that at some point I'd want to get into PA education. So in 2019, a position opened up at one of our um, local PA programs in Knoxville And I applied to it because I admit the requirements to start going into academia, they usually require about three years of clinical experience before you can go teach. Um, And I interviewed and I got the position and I transitioned from being a primary full-time surgical PA to being a full-time PA educator. And I still kept my part-time situation with an urgent care because that, I think they both make you better. Being a clinician makes you a better educator and being an educator makes you a better clinician. Um, so they both keep you on your toes and they exercise different parts of your brain. So it's, everybody goes, you work all the time, but you really don't. And this sounds like very cliche and cheesy, but it's not really work, work when you like what you do. Education, it is a job. Yes, there are parts that I like better and like less about education, but 95% of the time, like education's a blast. Um, and there is a degree of flexibility with education right. based on your schedule, based on what you're lecturing, the lab content. Um, you do have some more flexibility to move your schedule around. So when it's super, super hot out in the summers, I can on my education days go to the barn at O dark 30, like be there by 6, 630, have Ocelot tacked up first while Enzo's outside a little bit hack him and then hack Enzo and then be to work by like eight thirty nine o'clock. Right. Um, so you have that flexibility in education that I didn't really have when I worked in the OR. Um, and then my clinical position, that's just part-time slash as needed. So 
definitely some more flexibility there. And that job, I've been with them since 2017. So something, you know, in the clinical world, like medical clinical world, and honestly, probably most professions, the longer you're somewhere, the more you kind of get some flexibility and some street credit to kind of adjust your schedule to how you want to. So I do have flexibility for horse shows and going to indoors and going to these bigger shows. But I also kind of, it's one of those, I scratch your breath back, you scratch mine. So I sell my soul for holidays a little bit. Um, So I'll work Christmas, I'll work Christmas Eve, I'll work Mm -hmm. New Year's Day. But to me, that's a good trade-off for my flexibility with the horse world. So it's not just a, I take and take and take, there's some give there too. Right, definitely. I'm so glad you brought that up because I feel like that that quote, like, if you love what you do, you it doesn't feel like work or you'll never work a day in your life. And I feel like that can be a bit polarizing because um, I know for me personally, I've to a degree have always felt that way. Um, but I, I feel like people who maybe don't believe that haven't really experienced that. And I don't know, there just seems to sometimes be like a, a stigma that you like have to like work has to be this grind and it has to kind of be like miserable and separate from the things that you love doing. And um, I just think it's really cool. And we're super fortunate that we do really like genuinely enjoy what we do. And I would hope if that's not the case that we would find a different situation to, to seek doing, you know, doing something that we love doing. But I just think that that's yeah such an interesting concept that I feel like people tend to go um, kind of like one of two ways. It, it, that's why I just thought it was a bit polarizing. So I'm, I'm genuinely, I, I love that you genuinely love what you do and that even though, yes, there are, it's not rainbows and butterflies and you do, you know, have to do things like work Christmas Eve and Christmas day and things like that in the grand scheme of things, it's worth it to you because that allows you to show. So I think that's really cool. hundred percent. Um, as far as I, I obviously being a working amateur, when you were kind of figuring out what you wanted to do with your career, I'm always curious how much of it had to do with the fact that you're like, okay, I need to do something that funds my riding obsession. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. A lot. Um, definitely horses and funding and having horses in my life were a big factor. Um, a question I get all the time is, well, why aren't you a doctor? Like, why, why didn't you become a doctor? Why are you a yeah. PA? Why did you not become a physician? Well, I mean, honestly, the first answer is horses. Um, I wanted to get into horses sooner. If so, the timeline right. difference. So PA school is 27 months. Medical school is four years. Then another, then a residency. Most residencies, the small or the shortest one that you can really get is two to three years. And then most are having to do fellowships on top of that. So you're looking at four plus two plus one. So seven. So just over two years versus seven years. I didn't, I'm selfish and I didn't want to have to wait until I was into my thirties to really start showing and riding and being competitive. I wanted to do it sooner. And people ask all the time, they're like, do you regret it? Absolutely not. Zero percent. Never in my mind have I ever had the thought like, oh, you should have gone to medical school. Hmm. I don't. Yeah. And I wonder if I mean, obviously, it seems like you found a really good situation Mm -hmm. where you do have the ability to go show. But it also it seems like if you 
then would have taken the time, one away to go to school and away from the horses, that you still, you wouldn't have the flexibility you have now. Yeah, it's, I find that's one really great thing about being a PA is that we are in a a section of medicine that we're pretty fortunate to be able to balance your career in a life to really have that really great work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have a lot of the kind of more like stringent administration type responsibilities that physicians have. Um, There's a lot more opportunity, you know, running a practice, owning a practice. Yes, you can do it as a PA, but it's not the norm. Whereas it's much more expected to be like a practice partner as a physician. Whereas as a PA, you don't really, that's not really something that you would be kind of prepped or even consider as that type of provider. So, I mean, I'm shamelessly pro PA for horse girls or even, or nurse practitioner, nurse practitioner is great too, but Mm -hmm. being an advanced practice provider as a, as a horse, as a equestrian or horse girl, I think is just great. And it, yes, a hundred percent picking my career was definitely influenced more than just a little bit by horses. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. Um, What would you say is an area of the industry that you're passionate about that you feel like the rest of the horse world either just doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk that much about? Hmm. Okay. So I guess I would say the thing that I'm most passionate about is normalizing, especially for adult amateurs, especially for those who are either getting into it for the first time as an adult or getting back into it as an adult, that you can make mistakes. You can have, you know, bad distances. You can have to, you know, spend more time than you intended in a division that's, you know, not your end goal or the division that you aspire to be in um, and normalize that a little bit more. Um, because sometimes, I mean, we can all do it. We can scroll Instagram. You're like perfect distance, perfect distance, perfect course, um, perfect outfit. Like everything just looks like absolutely picture perfect. And just normalizing that, you know, you can come follow my account and you're going to see me miss here and there. And sometimes more than not. Um, and, for example, jump one of NHS last year, where I jumped into the center of jump one. Jump one was a huge, <laughs> well, I say huge. It really wasn't that huge. It was three foot, but a gappy oxer jumper poles looked into the center of it. I don't know what was going through my brain, but I had the world's smallest canner and Ocelot tried and got into the center of it and he's okay. <laughs> and it's fine. And But just normalizing that that's okay and that doesn't make you a bad rider or a bad equestrian or a bad horse owner. Like we all have those distances, whether or not you see them posted on social media. Right. So just normalizing that and normalizing like that show anxiety is fine and that you might not believe in yourself all the time and that other people feel the same way because until I realized that other people felt the same way and made similar mistakes. It was like a really isolating feeling to have, especially scrolling social media. So just trying to normalize that those things happen, whether or not you see them on social media as a whole, at least you can come scroll through my stuff and (laughs) see the good distances and the bad. Right. Um, And usually they're pretty entertaining. So I love it. Yeah. I think that that's a really great point and something that everyone knows in the back of their head, but I think we get used to only seeing highlights and, you know, 
show results and top results and things like that. And, and then that kind of becomes the new normal standard when in reality it's not. And everyone, I think that can kind of be a little bit of a, a bad mental game because you're obviously it's so this sport is so easy to compare yourself to others. And because I mean, that's the nature of the sport. You know, it's a judge sport based on, you know, the rest of the class and, and how smooth your round goes and can be very easy to compare yourself to others. So if that's all you're seeing and you're maybe not in a season of doing that on a consistent basis, I mean, the reality is no one can do that all the time. And that's the beauty of the sport is it's a sport that for a lot of us, we're fortunate enough to be in it for decades. And there's no way even the, even at the top of the sport that you're going to have perfect days. It's it, that rarely happens. So just continuing to have conversations about that, I think is super important. So that's why I, I think your account is so special to have because it's, it's really just showing more of the reality that, you know, most of us are, are going through as equestrians. Yep. Just keeping it real really trying. Someone's got it. So I appreciate that. That is, that's coming from you for sure. Um, but Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to come on and share your story and just being transparent, um, with me and with, with everyone on Oxford to Oncology. I think that that's, you know, such a, a special space. So thank you for continuing to show up there and, and being yourself. And I think a lot of people really value that. So thank you for taking the time and I wish you all the best. No problem. Thanks. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.